Amen. If you turn back to that Matthew chapter 6 passage we read earlier, verses 31 through 34, that's what we'll be focusing our attention on today. I read a sermon this week by a Scottish preacher by the name of James S. Stewart. And in that sermon, he was preaching about priorities. And to illustrate it, he used a metaphor about painting a picture. He says that when you paint a portrait, there is a foreground and there is a background, just like there is in life. And he described the foreground of a picture end of our lives in this way. He said the foreground includes the things that are right in front of us. Things that feel like they are right on top of us. And the things in your life and in a picture that are in the foreground are always the biggest things. The most important things. The things that we see most clearly. But then he goes on in his message to say, but there's also a background. And the things that are in the background are not the things that are very up close. In fact, they are often the things that, at least in the picture, and not, if not in our life, are off in the distance a little bit. They are things that are smaller in size. They're not nearly as clear or visible. They're not the point of the picture. You see, things in the foreground, in a picture, and in our lives are primary. And the things that are in the background, they are secondary. Now, he went on to say that both the foreground things and the background things are in the picture. And both are essential. But it's obvious that the things that are in the foreground are the purpose of the entire picture. And that's the very challenge that really Jesus lays before all of us today. In Matthew 6, 25 through 34, which is the entire context, what Jesus is going to have you and I decide is what is in the foreground and the background of our life when it comes to priorities. What will be your primary pursuit and what will be your secondary pursuit? Or to simply say it as Jesus put it in these words in the Sermon on the Mount, what will you seek first? What will be most important? What really matters most in your life? Now, in order to get what Jesus is after in your life, you have to understand the framework of this text. This Sermon on the Mount, by and large, is based on the central idea that to live in God's kingdom, you have to have a certain kind of righteousness. And in chapter 5 and verse 20, it says it's a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. The Pharisees and the scribes had an external only type of righteousness where they did certain things or they didn't do certain things. And that was the measure of being right with God. Jesus says that that's not his kingdom righteousness. His kingdom righteousness is far more than just externalism. Jesus would say it's an inside-out righteousness. It's not mainly something you practice before men. It's mainly something you practice before God. And so he begins to paint a picture, if I can say it that way, of what that kind of righteousness actually looks like in a day-to-day life. And so in chapter 6 and verse 1, the beginning of our chapter, he says with a warning, beware of how you practice your righteousness. And then he gives a bunch of Um, antithetical couplets of how to do it or not to do it. In verses 2 through 4, he says there's a right and a wrong way. There's a foreground and a background way of giving. And then in verses 5 through 13, it's also true in praying. 
whether you forgive people, so giving, praying, forgiving, fasting, and then he comes to the one directly right behind, or I should say next to our text, and he talks about money and the importance of it. And he says that basically money can't be your master. And so he goes through all these examples, and what he wants us to know, and and what's crucial in our text as we connect it to the previous passage because our text in verse 25 begins with the little word therefore. So he's not starting a new argument. He's building on it. He's building on what kingdom righteousness really looks like. And so today what I'm going to ask you because I believe Jesus is asking all of us as we consider our priorities is not just to change the things that you do on the outside. He's not just, Jesus is not after just changing how you do life, but how you view life. See, he wants an internal change that results in an external revolution in your life when it comes to your priorities. And so he does this comparing between two things. And he says, there are two treasures, one that lasts and one doesn't. He says, there are two masters, one that you will love and cling to and the other that you will hate. And money is the worst of all masters, he says. And based on that, he says, let me tell you about anxiety and worry. There are two treasures, there are two masters, and there are two ways or two views of what should be in the foreground and in the background of your everyday life if you are truly kingdom citizens and disciples of me, Jesus would say. And so he says, and I'll pick it up for in our text, therefore, verse 31... Do not be anxious. See, if you have Jesus' way of viewing life, if you have Jesus' way of putting the right things in the foreground and the background, he says you won't have to be worried. You won't have to be filled with anxiety. But unfortunately, now, in our culture, in our communities, and even, unfortunately, among some of God's people, anxiety is a major issue. So I want to ask you from the very outset, I hope you'll ask yourself, Pastor Walker, how do I know what is really first in my life? How do I really examine my priorities and see if they are kingdom priorities? How can I discern what is in the real foreground and the real background of my life? Well, Jesus says that the things that concern you most are the things that you care about most. What you pursue the most is what you really have as a priority the most. So let me put it this way. What you worry about most is what you want most. That's why three times in this text, once in verse 25, once in verse 34, one in verse 34, he gives the command and he repeats it. Do not be anxious. Here's why, get this, because our anxieties reveal our priorities. Let me say it again. Our anxieties reveal our priorities. And so Jesus says, therefore, don't be anxious. Now notice, don't be anxious saying because your anxiety and how you think about life and how you view it is often expressed most accurately in what you say. So how we talk about our needs and how we talk about what concerns us the most, how we talk about what we find to be a struggle and the things that we are anxious about are very important. And he says, people who struggle with anxiety are going to ask questions. And here's the questions. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? 
and what shall we wear? Jesus has addressed those three questions mentioned in verse 31 in verses 25 through 30, he addressed all of them and he says how I clothe the lilies and how I feed the birds and how I pro- provide for all of them. He says there's a way to ask this, these questions that has God at the center of it and there's a way to ask these questions that completely acts as if functionally that God is not there or doesn't exist. So let me fast forward it from the first century questions to some of the 21st century questions that we might be asking, that you might be asking right now, that are really troubling to you, that are kind of pushing you to fight against anxiety. You might say, well, what about my health? What about my job? I'm going to be laid off, or maybe you already have. Will I be able to pay the mortgage so forth and so on. What about my education? And what about all the things that are happening? You know, I was planning on graduating this year. And what about my plans and my senior year? And what about my wedding? And what about my trip? And I had put a lot of money into this. And we had a lot of questions that we're asking. And are these questions wrong to ask? Are they bad questions? Well, the answer to that is no, of course not. They're not bad questions. They're questions everyone is asking, saved and unsaved alike. But the problem really isn't with the questions in and of themselves, but rather the value system that's behind them. See, these questions about needing food and needing drink and needing clothing, see, they present themselves as things that should be in the foreground of our lives. They deserve our chief attention. However, as Jesus' followers and in his kingdom... See, these things should actually be in the background of my life. They are things that matter, but hear me, they do not matter most. And note in the, in, in the text, in verses 25 through 30, see, we have our questions and we're asking, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? And what are we going to wear? And Jesus has his own questions because if you're a good rabbi in the first century, when your disciples ask you questions, you usually answer them with questions. And Jesus does a great job of that. And he wants to say, hey, what about my food? Let me give you a question. Is not life, verse 25, is not life more, listen to the, underline it, more than food? I mean, yeah, food is important, Jesus says, but isn't your life, and the word literally is soul, isn't your soul what you're real, the core of your existence? I mean, you're really not about what you're going to get your next meal. That really isn't the most crucial question, is it? He says, is not life more than that? Verse 30, If God clothes the lilies of the field, will he not, listen to this, much more clothe you? See what he says? Oh, food is important. Clothes are important. Drink is important. But there are things, Jesus is saying, that are even more important than that. And I think he would say much more important than that. See, what he's not saying is food and drink and clothing don't matter. He's not saying that. No, they matter. They just don't matter most. And that's crucial. If you're honest, most Americans, including many Christians, have a major issue. And what we have a major issue is, is that we are, have a preoccupation with temporal things. We say that what matters most is what is eternal, what is spiritual, what is the things that you cannot see. But functionally in our daily lives, and unfortunately, things that cause anxiety reveal this. We are people too often who settle for much less when God is offering us much more. Jesus says, 
When you have me, I have, I, I give you much more than clothes, much more than food I offer you. C.S. Lewis wrote and said this, We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday by the sea. And then he says this, we are far too easily pleased. And we are. And we think that security and safety comes in so many different ways. And that we can calm our anxieties and our worries in so many different ways. But Jesus says that we are far too easily pleased. That he has more in store for us than just supplying our basic needs, even in the most difficult times, because what worries us most is what we want the most. So let me ask you straight out, what are your anxieties saying about you? And more importantly, what are your anxieties and how you're handling them? What do they say about God? What is really in the foreground of your life and what is really in the background of your life? Let me give you some examples for a lot of people right now, even Christians, what, um, they, what the CDC says is in the foreground. But what God says is in the background. Can I tell you, as kingdom citizens, it should be reversed. Not because what the CDC says doesn't matter. Oh, it matters. But it doesn't matter most. So a lot of people are concerned mainly about people who are infected by the virus. But their main concern is not people who are affected by the gospel. We are daily watching on the news and on internet reports about how many physical deaths have taken place and specifically close to where we live. But are we deeply concerned about how many spiritual deaths have taken place? How many people have died and went out into eternity? See, because the question we're asking is the virus spreading, but is there a more important question than that? Not because that one doesn't matter. Oh, because it does. Is the more in question is more important question is the gospel spreading? You see, in our text, Jesus says, well, "Let me give you two reasons why you should have this inverted set of values in comparison to what the world offers us." And he introduces each one of them with a little word F O R. Now, the first one is obvious, the second one isn't, and I'll point that out when we get there. But he says, therefore, verse 31, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? First, here's the reason. For the Gentiles seek after all these things. The word Gentiles is used four times in the Sermon on the Mount. And what it always means, as it does typically in Scripture, is Gentiles, people who do not know God. They do not worship and serve and have faith in the God of Israel, the God of the Bible. They don't. And Gentiles are people who live in this world's kingdom. Now, Gentiles are asking right now, um, I could say, lost people are asking right now the same questions we are. We are all asking, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we clothe ourselves with? And a lot more questions to go along with that. The difference is, is that people who don't know the Lord are asking the same questions, but are seeking different answers from a different source. 
And Jesus says, let me give you a reason why you should not be overcome with worry and anxiety. Why you as a Christian and a follower of Jesus and a kingdom citizen of God's kingdom should be radically different. He says, here's the reason why. Because unbelievers have different priorities. See, this is what, this is what Gentiles seek. They seek all these things but because them, they're ultimate. Things that are in the foreground of their life are things that are physical, tangible, things they can touch, visible realities. Those are the things that are right on top of them, in the front of their eyes right now, are only the things they can see, things that have to do with their personal well-being. And that's why Jesus in this text uses the word, the Gentiles seek it, because he's going to do a comparison between what they seek and what we seek. And this word seek has a little bit of an intensive prefix in front of it, epi, and it means to do it very intensely. In other words, Gentiles right now are very, very, lost people are very, very intense about having all of their needs met. It's their number one priority. It's what they're all about. When I was growing up, um, my dad was a gun collector, and every fall, and sometimes into the early winter, we would go hunting and we would go to this place where we hunt, we hunt pheasant mostly. I did a little deer hunting, but I'm not good with rifles. It's a broader spray of bullets, so to speak, or pellets. When you have a shotgun, it's easier to hit the target. And we would go pheasant hunting, and we would go to this place, and they would have dogs. And they were short-haired Germans, uh, uh, German short-haired dogs. And they were bred for really only one thing, and that was to hunt pheasants. And they put all the, they had their own pheasants, they raised them, the dogs would be around them all the time, and they would sniff them, they knew exactly what a pheasant smelled like, they really did. And so we would go out there, and we'd always have a dog or two, and we'd be got, go out with a guy, and my dad and I, and sometimes my grandfather, who was up from Texas, he'd be up there sometimes, and it was amazing, really, to watch these German short-haired dogs hunt bird. They were excellent at it. It's the one purpose, really, why they existed. And we would be going out there, and it'd be out kind of in a farm area, and it'd have underbrush and growth and stuff like that, and trees all around, and they would let the pheasants go out, and then 30 minutes later, you could go out and try to get them. Well, the dogs would go, and they, they had their nose to the ground. They were sniffing, and they would go in and out of things, and they would move all around and everything. And once the dog got the scent of the pheasant, oh, you could tell he was intensifying. And then eventually he would come right up on the pheasant and he would be within a couple, three feet of it. Now, I'm sitting there many times. In fact, most times I couldn't see the pheasant. I mean, they coloring and everything blended in perfectly with the underbrush and growth. And, and, and I didn't know. I, I couldn't believe there was actually something there. But I mean, he would sniff and then he would get real slow and then he would do this. He would point. I mean, he would stop and he'd put his nose out and his body would lurch forward and he'd be, and he wouldn't, he'd be frozen. And I would walk around, literally walk around where the dog was, and I'd go, Dad, there's nothing here. And my dad would go over and say, hey, go kick the underbrush over there. Kick it. And I'd kick it, and lo and behold, boom, that bird would come out of there like that. My dad was shotgun, he'd pull it, and he'd shoot the bird. And I would, I'd be always amazed that there was a bird there, and that dog found it. You know what? They're only bred for one thing. But here's the crazy thing. They don't see the bird. That dog would know. I found birds that dropped in the ground next to them. They couldn't see it. But they could smell it. And when they smelled it, they would point. And that's how they worked. But they really couldn't see what they were after. 
And see, our world and the people in our world, see, they have one way about going after what they want. And they, they are, that's what they are. That's how they exist. That's what they see life is all about. That's how they view life. It's just one thing. And see, they can smell it and they're after it. And they're going to point to it because they, what food and drink and clothing and success and money and health, these are the things that matter most to them. See, this is what concerns them. And when you lose them and you don't have the drink, you're not sure of your health and you're not sure about the future and it's the certainty of any of those things. See, they become friends because they have no other way they can see nothing else but that's not God's people see God's people are different see we pursue God we have can I say it not, we're on a different hunt <laughs> we're pursuing a different end and our thing our pursuit is not only the things that are right in front of your face but things that you can't see Things that are realities that those people who don't know the Lord, they would never understand those things because they don't know him. In fact, that's what the next little word for is in verse 32. And in our text, it's translated and, but it's actually the exact same word the first one was for. He says, for the Gentiles seek after all these things. And it says, for your heavenly father. Your heavenly father knows that you have need of all of these things. It's the second reason Jesus gives. And the word you're having, that little phrase, your heavenly father, is used a number of times in this text. And it talks about a relational father. Someone who intimately knows you. Someone who intimately cares about you. You see, if you have a heavenly father, you will have a heavenly focus. But if not, all you'll be able to see is right in front of you. But see, if you, have, if you don't have a heavenly father, you won't have a heavenly focus. And so many people in our world are struggling right now, and they're really struggling with anxiety and fear and worry. And one of the reasons Jesus says is this, because they're Gentiles, they're people who don't know me, they don't have a relationship with my heavenly father. See, all of their physical needs, they think those are most important, and they put them in the foreground of their life. And they think that's really what's most important, what matters most. Case in point, Christopher Hitchens, which was a well-known, avowed atheist, said this. There is no escape from anxiety. You know why he had to say that? Because Christopher Hitchens had no heavenly father. See, there is no escape from anxiety if you have no heavenly father. Have you ever told someone... Or has someone tell you, oh, Pastor Walker, I, just recently, in fact, numerous times, you know, this, this, and such and such just happened in my life, and this person, and this happened, and I lost this. And you know what I, one of the first things I always say, God knows. Do you know, if you're lost and you don't know Jesus, you can't say that. But our text, Jesus says, if you're a follower of me, here's what you can bank on. Here's the encouragement. Negatively, Gentiles don't know this. Positively, you do. You have a heavenly father. Isn't that a great thing? I hope if you're, as you're watching today that you're encouraged. See, knowing Jesus means you have a heavenly father. Heavenly meaning he has all the resources of heaven. Everything that God has, you have. He's powerful. He can meet, that's why when he says he knows all your needs, he can take care of every need that you have. So yeah, he's a father. What kind of father? Where well, he's a powerful one. But 
he's also a personal one because he's not just a God who has all this power but way out there where you can't touch him and he doesn't know what you're going through and he doesn't see your pain and your struggle and your fear. No, he knows. See what it says? He knows all the things that you need. And by the way, the needs are so great right now, aren't they? I mean, they are, always are around the world. But Christians all over, so many nations, so many needs. Christians and unsaved people alike because God is gracious to them as well. He reigns on the just and the unjust. And our God has so many things, but, but he knows. He knows about you. He knows about your personal struggles. He knows about all the things that bring tears to your eyes and keep you up at night and the worries that you're facing. He knows all of them. See, we can't have the values of the world. We can't respond to coronavirus the same way they do. We can't have the same values that they do. Why? Because unlike them, we have a heavenly father. So what's the upshot of all of this? What does it mean for us as kingdom citizens who have a heavenly father? You know what it means? We have a radically different value system as a result of it. And that's where the famous verse we all memorized comes in. But it's hinged on the preceding two verses. Verse 33 starts with the word but. You see the contrast? See the two treasures, two masters? Now there are two ways of seeking, two ways of viewing what matters most. And Jesus says... For those who follow me, you know, the Gentiles seek this because they don't have a heavenly father. But that, but, see, that isn't true for you. See, we, we put different stuff in the foreground of the picture of our life. We put different stuff in the background of our life. We have a different response to trouble. We have a different response to life. When we're sniffing out things, see, we, we point at something completely different. We're hunting down a different pursuit, Because we have a different set of values. But it's more than that. Did you see it? Jesus said, don't just seek the kingdom instead of seeking the kingdom like the Gentiles do. No, seek the kingdom first. This is nothing other than revolutionary. Jesus takes what's in the foreground of the average person's life and puts it in the background And he takes what's in the background to people in the world, what they really don't care about at all, and he puts it and switches it to the foreground of our lives. This is nothing short of a complete paradigm shift. This is a reversal of everything you thought mattered most. And so he says, he takes all these things, that little phrases, see the Gentiles seek all the physical, visible tangible things and he puts them down the priority list way down the priority list in fact he goes on to rename them and he calls these things things that I will add to your life in other words I know that they're essential on a physical level but you know what there's another level where these things in comparison they're only add-ons and it's the same word used in verse 27 can you add one hour to your lifespan The word add. And the word is the Greek word. In the English we get prosthetic. Where you don't have an arm and they add one to you by giving you an uh, an arm. And Jesus says, let me tell you what food and clothing and success and all the things that you think matter and should be in the foreground. Let me tell you, they're background things. And if you seek what really is first, see, I'll give you the add-ons. I'll give you the extras. I'll give you those things. And let me tell you, that's a hard concept to grasp because everybody right now thinks that, oh, no, this is what matters most. This isn't an add-on. This is it. And Jesus says, not when you're in my kingdom. 
Not when you have a heavenly father, he says. See, for us as Christians, food and drink and clothing and success and approval and popularity and fulfilled dreams and future plans all need to become subservient to what is really first in Jesus' eyes. What matters most to him, and he doesn't leave us guessing. He says exactly what it is. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. See what he's doing? Seek the kingdom of God. Seek the way of life that Jesus is introducing to you. The way of life where turning the other cheek is normal. It's in the foreground. When blessing your enemies is not just something abnormal that in the background that I only... No, it's in the foreground. When lust is not just something you act out on physically, it's something you can actually do in your mind and your heart. We're giving and praying and forgiving. See, the way Jesus does it, it's not something you do to show off. It's something you do because you have a relationship with God. See, it's a complete way of life reversal. See, that's what you should seek. An inside-out type of living But right now, see, people are just concerned and worried about all the externals. Jesus says, in my kingdom, you can stop worrying. You know why? Because we have an inside-out righteousness, one that takes God, spiritual things, things you really can't see. We take those to be most important in our lives. It's a way of living. It's not just tacking on stuff to the outside. It's not just going through coronavirus and kind of praying once in a while during the day. You know what? It's a completely different set of values. So what is, and be honest, what is your number one pursuit? Does your response to the coronavirus and how it impacts you every day indicate what matters most to you? Does it reflect that you have a heavenly father who really knows intimately and personally and cares about what you're going through and the needs that you have? Does it demonstrate a completely different set of values than the lost people around you that you work with or in your neighborhood that you're trying to impact? Corey Tim Boom was a Dutch woman, and her and her family hid Jewish people during World War II, and she wrote a book called The Hiding Place. But eventually, Corey Tim Boom and her family were arrested, and they were in prison for a while and eventually were to Ravensbrück at a concentration camp. Corey and her sister Betsy were very, very close. It was in the months that they were at the Ravensbrook concentration camp that her sister Betsy died. Later she would, as she traveled across America, 40 different countries over the next 30 or 40 years, she would tell people a lesson that she learned. And here's what it was. When it came to temporal things, including her own sister, she said, and I quote, God has taught me to hold things loosely so that it doesn't hurt as much when he has to pry my fingers off of them. See, people who are filled with anxiety and stress, they're grasping these things, holding on to them. You know why? Because it's in the foreground. It's what matters most. Christians, we can let them or only hold them loosely. It doesn't mean we don't hold them, but we hold them loosely Because we have something better. So much more. So the second, therefore, ends our text. And the second admonition in our little paragraph 
to not be anxious includes a little maxim or axiom at the end. He says, don't be anxious about tomorrow. Are you? Are you worried about what the government or the president is going to say tomorrow? Jesus would say, don't let the uncertainty of the spread of the virus or possibly being quarantined or new restrictions cause you to be paralyzed. And here's the reason. He says, you know why you don't have to be anxious for tomorrow? Little word four again. See it? For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. In other words, you trust me today. I'll take care of tomorrow. I know about your needs. I know who you are. Listen to this. And I know all about tomorrow. You don't. See, you don't know the future, but I do, he says. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Take it one day at a time. His mercies are new every morning because great is his faithfulness. See, God has got it every day. He's got it under control. Your job is to live out his kingdom values, to seek his kingdom first. And when you do, I'll take care of tomorrow. I'll take care of the add-ons. I'll take care of the... See, put those things in the background and put what I say is most important in the foreground. You live that way, God says. So here's some examples of how you could do that. Everyone right now is buying and hoarding paper towels and toilet paper and so on and so forth. My wife and I would love to have you join us. I'm sure there are many other people doing it. But buy extra, but not for the same reason everyone else is. Buy extra so you can put it on a shelf designated for others. So if someone runs out of toilet paper or paper towels or needs a little bit of this or a little bit of that, see, you can give to them. Isn't that what Ephesians says? You know why we make money? Not just to get a paycheck, he says, but to give to those who have need. Instead of just worrying about yourself and being glued to every announcement on the internet or everything on the news broadcast, why don't you start a small group and use FaceTime to do it? Or why don't you download uh, Google Hangouts or Zoom? I've done that with my D group, and we meet all the time, talk all the time with the four guys I'm working with. We're still hanging out. Can I say it? We're still having discipleship. You know why? Because we're thinking about what others need. And I encourage you, do that. Do that. Stop asking only this question, will I have enough? And start asking the question, maybe more frequently, will others have enough? See, those are ways that we can live kingdom living out, inside out righteousness. You know how we can do that? You know why we can do that? Because we have a heavenly father. And he's got tomorrow all under his control. An old song, I love it. I'd sing it for you, but you wouldn't come back to the next internet broadcast we had probably. It's by a guy named Ira Stanfield. He wrote a lot of songs. They're old ones. You probably don't know them perhaps unless you're my age. I've got a mansion over the hilltop. There's room at the cross. Um, Happiness is the Lord. I mean, 500 songs he wrote in his lifetime. But the one perhaps I like the most is he says, I don't know about tomorrow. He says, I don't know about it. Let me tell you before I read the words to it what his life was like. He was very internationally known as a preacher and as a songwriter. He would sing and he got married and the first nine years of his marriage, almost ten, were great. But then his wife got disillusioned with the ministry, being gone all the time, having to keep such a schedule. And eventually, for a number of reasons, she divorced him. It caught him completely off guard. He didn't see it coming, and it really rocked his whole life. He didn't know how he was going to go on. Eventually, he got remarried uh, years later because after his divorce, within a two- or three-year period, his wife, who had divorced him, died in a car accident. So the divorce and then the death of the wife that he tried to reconcile with never happened for him, never got back together with her. 
And one day, in the midst of his struggle with fear and worry and anxiety about what the future held, he sat down and he wrote these words. I don't know about tomorrow. I just live from day to day. I don't borrow from its sunshine, for its skies may turn to gray. I don't worry or the future, for I know what Jesus said. And today, I'll walk beside him, for he knows what is ahead. The chorus, many things about tomorrow, I don't seem to understand. But I know who holds tomorrow, and I know who holds my hand. That's our trust. That's the answer to anxiety. We know who holds tomorrow, our Heavenly Father, and we know he holds our hand. I'm going to pray, and then Dave's going to come and lead us on a song, maybe a modern version. He will hold me fast. Father, we don't know what a day may bring forth, Proverbs says. We don't know about tomorrow, but this we know, that you hold tomorrow And you hold our hands. That's how close you are, Heavenly Father. And we love that. We're trusting in that. We're banking on it. God, because it's true, may we seek your kingdom first. May we have your values, your priorities, your view on what matters most in life. Help us to live that out. What an opportunity we have in these days to show the world what it means to have God at the center of your life. Help us to do that by faith, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. May God grant us the grace to trust him and to know that Jesus has a greater hold on us than we have on him. So we're going to sing, He Will Hold Me Fast. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, He will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold Through life's fearful path For my love is often cold He must hold me fast He will hold me fast He will hold me fast For my Savior loves me so will hold me fast those he saves those he saves are his delight Christ will hold me fast precious in his holy sight he will hold me fast he'll not let my soul be lost his promises shall last bought by him at such a cost he will hold me fast he will hold me fast he will hold me fast for my savior loves me so he will hold me
my feet bled and died, Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied, He will hold me fast. Raise with Him. Raise with Him to endless life, He will hold me fast till our faith is turned to sight. hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. Again, we're so thankful for you uh, worshiping with us over the internet today. We do have another service tonight at six o'clock. And the Lord willing, we'll see you then. And I know the Lord will hold you fast. Thank you.